Hello, and welcome to the Field Guides. I'm Steve, and I'm here with Bill. Good evening, Bill. Good evening, Steve. What we're going to do today, and over the course of many future episodes, is give you the experience of what it's like to be out in the field, in the woods, and on the trail. For every episode, we pick a natural history topic, research the science on that topic, head out to a natural area, and share with you everything we learned. And Bill, maybe you're going to think I'm crazy. (laughs) Too late. but (laughs) But today... We're bringing you the first of hopefully many bonus episodes about spring ephemerals. Ah, okay. Yeah, (laughs) and it's my great hope that we can do a few shorter bonus episodes like this each late winter and spring as long as we have the time. I like this idea. See, folks, I had no idea what Steve was going to be covering when he brought me out here today. Yeah. (laughs) And, uh, And before I bring up this specific topic, I should probably explain what a spring ephemeral is. Or... Bill, would you do the honors or would you like to? Sure. So just think of, obviously, we know what spring means. And ephemeral is, you know, something that's not around very long. It comes and goes quickly. So these are the wildflowers that have evolved to use that little window of time between the beginning of the warm weather in the spring or warmer weather in the spring and when the tree canopy fills in. So these are the wildflowers you can find in early spring on the forest floor that then disappear and we don't see again until the following spring. Yeah, uh, one way that I thought about it is that they avoid competition, not by changing where they occur, but rather when they occur. Yeah, true. Very good. Yeah. And the first plant in the series is actually an entire genus. I think I know what it is. Do you want to guess? So I'm thinking we're out here looking for skunk cabbage because there's snow on the ground and the only spring ephemeral that I'm thinking we're going to find when there's still snow on the ground is skunk cabbage. That's true. I think we should keep our eyes open for that one. Uh, That's not the one I'm going to talk about today. Oh, okay. (laughs) Maybe we'll do that another time. (laughs) Hint, uh, hint. Yeah. (laughs) But I'm talking about the genus Tussilago, which only has a single species. I know, I know. Go. Cultivate. Yeah. <laughs> Tussilago farfara. I've always said Tussilago. Oh, Tussilago. Okay. Yeah. Well, wow. I mean, the fact that maybe I pronounced it wrong is a good sign because I, I read it in a book. I, <laughs> that is that's true. one of my favorite sayings yeah. uh, for, for mispronunciation. Yeah. <laughs> it's Latin. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So I think uh, first let's jump right into what Colt's foot looks like. Sure. But let's keep walking. I, yeah. I got to stay warm. By the way, uh, Bill, do you want to explain where we are and maybe what the weather's like? Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah. And why so. we shouldn't expect to see any right now? <laughs> For longtime listeners, this will be a familiar spot because this is where we recorded our very first episode. So this is Hunter's Creek Park, uh, which is a county park. And just to refresh everyone's memory, this is it's a park about mm, 30 minutes southeast of Buffalo, New York, and the shores of Lake Erie. So it's mostly a second growth forest, uh, some some meadows that are transitioning to forest. There are some patches of old growth, but the main feature here is a, a shale bottom creek, Hunter's Creek, but uh, we're not going to be visiting that today. No. <laughs> I, I can't imagine anyway. <laughs> yeah. And one reason I said that we didn't really expect to see Colt's Foot is uh, A, it's a little bit early in the season for Colt's Foot, and B, we're walking through at least a half a foot of snow, yeah. if not more. <laughs> so we're recording this in early March. And uh, Western New York has gotten some snow over the past week. So, yeah, yeah, we have a good amount of snow on the ground, heavy snow. And, Though Colt's uh, foot could flower in March, uh, just not right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So a few weeks ago, we did have a couple of warm days, and I did see some snowdrops and crocuses poking up out of the, the grass. But uh, 
those are under the snow now. Yeah. All right, so we're crossing a little trail bridge over a creek here. And actually, let's maybe take a break here. Okay. All right, so I think the first thing that we should cover is what does Colt's foot look like? All right, that's easy. Yeah. It looks like dandelions. <laughs> Superficially, yeah, it looks like dandelions. Um, at least the flower heads do. I bet most people listening to this right now, I bet if they're in North America, yeah. <laughs> if I bet you've seen Colt's foot and I bet you've just kind of registered in your head as, oh, that's dandelion. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and maybe for people who aren't paying really close attention to it, uh, because who really pays very close attention to what they think is a dandelion, right. they wouldn't notice some of the differences. And, sure. and some of the, especially when you know about them, very glaring differences between the two plants. Right. So like dandelions, they do have a head of densely packed yellow flowers. Uh, we did talk about the aster family a little bit during the goldenrod episode. And uh, this is actually what the family's known for. Uh, you'll notice that goldenrods, dandelions, and coltsfoot all have inflorescences that are made up of small, densely packed flowers. So they have a flower head made of lots of little flowers. Yeah, some are called disc flowers in the middle of the head, and some are ray flowers that tend to have more elongated petals around the edge of the flower head. So coltsfoot flowers are a little smaller than dandelions. Yeah. In the flower head, it has 3 to 80 sterile disc flowers. That's a lot <laughs> for such a small little flower head. And those flowers are surrounded by 150 to 500 fertile ray flowers. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, that are in several rows, yeah. Uh, the flower heads are one to one and a quarter inches wide, and they occur singly on a flowering stem, just like dandelions, right. just one, one flower per stem. But what about the stem? Yeah, so while dandelions have smooth flowering stalks, colt's foot are covered in woolly hairs and reddish scaly bracts. Yeah. And I think when I think of colt's foot, that's what I picture is the scaly bracts. That's like the one thing I, I hone in on. Yeah. And what are those bracts for? Do you know? Well, I, I've read before. I don't know if you came across it because obviously I didn't research for this. So this is just off the top of my head. Oh, yeah. Is this the first time we're mentioning that? <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I remember reading that researchers weren't sure what they were for. But one of the theories was that it was for to capture heat. They're dark. So they're going to oh. uh, absorb more heat from the sun. That makes some sense. Yeah. Yeah. But it could be completely wrong as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's a nice idea, right. at least. Yeah. <laughs> so Coltsfoot has actually several of these stems. They arise from a single root crown. Um, the stems are 2 to 6 inches when flowering begins and 12 to 20 inches by the time the flowers mature. Okay. So maybe the most noteworthy thing to mention about Coltsfoot is that the leaves only emerge after the flower matures. Yeah. Did, did you know that... Historically, people thought they were two separate plants. Oh, I think er, early in my career of, of identifying plants, I thought they were two separate plants. Yeah. I would see coltsfoot leaves all year long, or, yeah. or you know, at least from spring till uh, fall, and I'd be like, what is this plant? It's everywhere. <laughs> I have no idea what it is. And, you know, I know now, but... <laughs> yeah. And I actually had someone argue with me once, and they might be right, but they said coltsfoot shouldn't be considered a spring ephemeral because the leaves remain throughout the growing season whereas most of your spring ephemerals like trillium trout lily hepatica their leaves disappear don't hepatica stay around well yeah no you're right they do yeah i think so so that person was wrong <laughs> <laughs> all right so time to describe the leaves the leaves are basal meaning that all of the leaves come out of the base of the plant yeah. <laughs> basal base <yeah. laughs> um, so no stem leaves yeah and they're somewhat heart-shaped but they have like 
toothed shallow lobes, uh, and they're roughly two to eight inches wide. They're hoof-shaped. Yeah, <laughs> right. So that's why I said they're hoof-shaped, but hooves aren't spiky and shallowly lobed. All right. Yeah, that's what I was saying. It's like a horse from hell, I that's guess. Why <laughs> that's why it's called cult foot. Yeah, I know. the leaves yeah. look like... Yeah. Yeah, I, I totally got that. All right, that so wasn't it's... lost on me. <laughs> it's a hoof shape with angular sides. I yeah, guess. yeah. <laughs> So like Bill was just saying, most of the time you run into colt's foot, you're probably seeing the leaves and not the flowers. Especially if early in the spring it's a little too cold for you, a little too muddy especially for a lot of people. You might not go until the flowers are gone. And so, they, they yeah. do seem to like to grow in disturbed places. Yeah. Because I often see them a lot on the roadside, uh, blossoming on the roadside. Yeah, and, and I feel like when I was back in school... Um, I would definitely miss it sometimes because especially like during exam time at the end of the year, it's, you know, especially if it's May, you yep. know, well, at least I get, I get really stressed out uh, around school sometimes. So, so I'm like, I can't go hiking. I got to study. So I totally miss, uh, totally miss some of these the spring of flowers. flowers. Yeah. yeah. All right. So let's talk about the range. Uh, Colt's foot is native to Europe, Western Asia, and Northwest Africa. I actually didn't know that before looking into the plant. I didn't know it was non-native. You knew? Really? Yeah. No, I did know that because uh, at one time, maybe like 10, 15 years ago, I used to write down natural history facts on uh, on cards and quiz myself <laughs> on things. And that is one that I remember was that it was native to Europe, Asia, parts of Asia and Africa. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it was probably introduced by European settlers for its medicinal properties. Yeah. Um, as well as its use in teas, candy, and as tobacco, mm-hmm. which I didn't know about that. So, so that's where Tusilego comes from. Yeah. Tussis. I'll get, I'll get into that. Oh, yeah. Okay, good. Yeah. So as early as 1840, it was present in the U.S., and by 1920, it was present in southeast Canada. It spread pretty fast. Yeah. So in the U.S., it's found in the northeastern states. Uh, you don't really see much of it uh, west of central Ohio or oh. south of North Carolina. I didn't know that. Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, so I thought it there was are, old. Yeah, there are some observations in some counties in Michigan, Wisconsin, Idaho, and Washington, but they're really scarce beyond the northeastern U.S. and southeastern Canada. Okay. Sorry, Western <laughs> listeners. <laughs> Sorry, Midwestern listeners. Uh, many of you may not have experienced Colt's foot before. Yeah. Although there is a Western Colt's foot, but it's in a different genus. Oh. Yeah. And it looks a bit different, actually. It's, uh, I, I don't actually think it's, it resembles it too closely. So before I move on, there's two things I want to add. I remember reading that the leaf of Coltsfoot, since it's so distinctive, in the past in Europe, in the Middle Ages, apothecaries would often, as a sign, since there were a lot of people that were illiterate and couldn't read, they would simply hang a, uh, a signboard shaped like a Coltsfoot leaf. And that was kind of the universal sign for an apothecary because colt's foot was so commonly used as an herbal remedy. I'm so glad you brought that up because I read that and I left it out of my notes because it's so boring because it's all about people. And uh, that's not what this podcast is about, Bill. All right. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I'm actually going to go a little bit into what people did with it as well. So, all right. Yeah. So the other fact is not related to people, but the leaves, I remember reading that they serve multiple purposes because the leaves are pretty big. Mm-hmm. Um, they helped direct water down the stem to the roots. So when they get rained on, just the way they're shaped, they direct water to go down the stem towards the root. I didn't even think about that. Yeah. And the leaves, they do keep the ground where this plant is growing moist because they provide so much shade. And then that shade also prevents other things from growing there as well. Yeah. And, and, you know, we'll get into it, but Colt's foot 
does like to get its feet wet a yep. little bit. Yeah. And uh, but but speaking of the leaves. I know I said that they can be anywhere from like two to eight inches, but I swear I've seen monster Colts foot leaves. Well, Probably that, around eight. I don't now know. Now that you put me on the spot. Yeah, so I don't know if I'm like, my memory's exaggerating. 20 inches. It. Yeah, 20 inches. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure there's some outliers that are monsters. Yeah. yeah. Those are usually under power lines. Because <laughs> <laughs> of the, the electro That's right. energy. That yeah, that's to... right. <laughs> yeah. All right. <laughs> All right. So let's talk about the habitat a little bit. Colt's foot actually occurs in a variety of habitats uh, and plant communities uh, throughout the U.S. and Canada, uh, but commonly it occurs in mixed hardwood riparian floodplains and bottomland communities. Oh. Colt's foot is considered a facultative upland species, which more or less means that it usually occurs in non-wetlands, but it may occur in wetlands as well. But through reading up on the literature, it seems like Colt's foot is perfectly happy with at least intermittent flooding. So... Uh, I don't know, a lot of things that I've read said that, so in fact, um, Colt's foot commonly occurs in and on the edge of wetlands. It's not a hydrophyte, (laughs) but it's well adapted to poor wet soils. Uh, This includes rivers, lakes, ponds, swamps, marshes, peatlands, and fens. There's whole populations that occur on peatlands in its native range, and Huh. That kind of surprised me because I don't think of it much as a wetland plant, though. No, I don't think especially, so. Especially, I think I think you would notice it like on stream banks and sandy soils. You know, I wonder if those habitats that you're listing, mm-hmm. I wonder if the range of habitat types is different in its native range than it is here in the New World. It seems like in both places they like similarly oh, like wet soils. They do occur in upland and, and drier sites, yeah. but... They do better in wet soils. Okay. Yeah. Like I just said, it can also be found in uplands, grasslands, and disturbed sites, uh, especially disturbed sites, like cultivated, fallow, and successional fields along railroad tracks, roadsides, and ditches. Didn't I say that? What? Didn't I say that? Yeah, <laughs> sure. But repetition is good for learning, Bill, <laughs> yes, it all right? It, it's not that I wasn't listening to you. It's that I wanted to repeat it for the listeners. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, Colt's foot really seems to move in after disturbance events. Combing through the literature, it it can actually become one of the most abundant species in areas between two and five years after a disturbance event, which kind of surprised me because I don't really think of it as something that dominates, uh, you know, an area. Yeah, taking up huge areas. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So uh, Colt's foot does its best in fertile soils, like most plants, but proportionally... It does best in poor soils, meaning that it does well in poor soils, but it only does a little bit better in fertile soils. All right. So it does better, but it well, can probably outcompete things in poor soils. That's what I'm, I was yeah. just going to say. Yeah, right. it probably has fewer, less competition in poor soils. Right, so I think its functional role would probably be in poor soils, yeah. not, in, <laughs> not in, in good soils, you know. So uh, it's also salt tolerant, actually surprisingly so. Um, I, I think uh, there's actually populations in New York that I've read that are on really salty soils. So that made me think of uh, an herbal use for the plant. Can I share that now yeah, or should I wait? Yeah. So I remember at one point reading somewhere that the leaves, the burned leaves, you could use the ashes as a salt substitute. Seriously? Seriously. Huh. So I tried that. That's totally wrong. <laughs> <laughs> uh, they taste like ashes. <laughs> Oh, I thought you meant salting the roads. No, no. <laughs> You're 
just burning these plants? Uh, I'm so glad you're my co-host because who other than you has tried to use coltsfoot leaves and salt? Well, obviously somebody did. I guess. All right. So, um, so uh, coltsfoot is also somewhat tolerant of soil acidity, so it does occur in soils with pHs between four and ten. And, and you might recognize that being a really wide range of pHs. Yeah. Uh, anything under 7 is acidic, and everything, anything above uh, is basic or alkaline. Though it, it does occur more commonly in neutral, so around 7, to strongly alkaline soils. And a 10 would be strongly alkaline. Yeah, true. Yeah. Um, lastly, Colt's foot is pretty flexible when it comes to p- topography. Which I, I, I almost left this out, but I, I just love like beating this horse to death um, <laughs> <laughs> about how, how oh, versatile it is in terms of its environment. So uh, it's fine with level or gently sloping land, but it's also totally fine with steep and erosional slopes, especially road cuts. So, yeah, uh, yeah I mean... I see it on roadside ditches. Yeah, yeah, it's it's just it's a really flexible plant, and that's something I'm really trying to drive home. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, my hands are cold. Let's uh, let's start moving. Yeah, I know my my fingers and toes are starting to go numb here. <laughs> All right. So I want to back up and briefly talk about taxonomy, and not in any type of deep way. But back in the Eastern Hemlock episode, I said that gymnosperms, which is comprised of 14 plant families, only made up 1,081 species, or 0.3% of all plants. Well, the Asteraceae, the family that colt's foot, dandelions, and goldenrods belong to, is made up of almost 33,000 species. (laughs) (laughs) Or 9% of all the plants in the world. Nine? Yeah. Wow, I never knew that. That's huge, right? So... And have we said before, isn't Asteraceae like considered the most successful family? I would, of plants? I would have to imagine that the biggest family would also be the most diverse. And right. I think you could also consider that the most successful. But and I almost put that in my notes, but then I was wondering if there was some subtle point that I was sure. missing if I said that. <laughs> I, I was that's actually a, pretty, a little bit worried of saying it. That's yeah. a pretty bold statement. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a family that's doing pretty well. Yeah. <laughs> so uh the Asteraceae is the largest plant family in the world but for uh, comparison orchids make up 8.1 percent of all plants wow do you remember being told that the orchid family was the biggest family no i i I feel like i remember hearing that in field ecology okay but whether they recently discovered more asters since then um maybe that's why but so so um and this is actually an order from largest family to smallest so this is flowering plants oh no this is all plants all plants yeah so this is all plants so, aster, the aster ACE and the orchids, they make up 17% of all plants? <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, we have ACE at 9%, orchid ACE at 8.1%. Then you have the legumes, the peas, they make up 5.7% of all plants. The ruby ACE, or, uh, you know, coffee, matter, and bed straw family, they make up 3.8% of all plants. And the grasses make up 3.2% of all plants. Those are the top five largest families. Uh, And just to compare that back to the 14 families that make up gymnosperms, uh, that's just 
zero point three percent just one thousand eighty one species uh, and I think in a future episode we can do a deeper dive into the aster family. Uh, I just thought i 'd use this episode to explain how large the family is, uh, you know like almost three times bigger than the grass family, which is number five, <laughs> and over thirty times larger than all fourteen families of gymnosperms combined <laughs> but gymnosperms did used to be the dominant. Oh, right, yeah. Plants, yeah, yeah, a long, long ago. So a long time ago, it was their heyday back yeah. in high school, you know. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so let's drop it down to the genus, which is really just the species. <laughs> That's easy. Yeah, because as you said, this is the only plant in the genus, right? Yeah. yeah. So uh, Tussilago used to be a larger genus with over 24 species, but now all but one of those have been divided up into other genera. And I think a number of those genera are probably, I didn't really recognize them all that much. Um, Senecio I recognized, but other than that, I, I, I didn't really, uh, maybe they're more European genera. The word Tussilago more or less means cough suppressant. Right. Uh, cough yeah, tussis, uh, which means cough, and ago, uh, which is Latin for to cast or to act on. Uh, but let's put a pin in that because we'll get into animal uses in a little bit. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> what, is, what does the uh, specific epithet mean? Farfara? Yeah, so I'm unsure where that came from. Okay. Right. <laughs> yeah. um, but I noticed it was actually included in some of the outdated binomial nomenclature uh, for this species. Uh, for example, an old name for it, Farfara radiata. Okay. Another one, Cineraria farfara. Okay. So we've already seen it pop up twice. Uh, but the other ones are Tussilago alpestris and Tussilago umbertina. I think it's because the, the seeds, they go so far, far away. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, geez. <laughs> we know you're a dad now. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so I think this would be a good time to mention that while the common name comes from the leaves looking like horf... Horf... Oh, my God. Horse hoof prints. <laughs> I can't say that. <laughs> so, um, Colt's foot has also been referred to as Farfara. Oh, okay. It's a common name, so maybe that's where it comes in in the in the uh, scientific name. That doesn't explain why. I don't know what it is. I don't know what. I don't know what it means. Um, it's also called ass's foot. We we bleep that out. <laughs> um, foal's foot, horse foot, bull's foot. In the Old English, they refer to it as coughwort, which makes some sense. Yeah. Um, Foleswort and tash plant. Do you know what tash is? No. Uh, so I looked all over for it. And the only thing I found, the only result that I found, was that it's a uh, like slang abbreviation for mustache. What? <laughs> tash. Oh, oh. Nice, nice tash you got there. <laughs> that can't be I, right. So I've never heard that, but I think it might be more common in the UK. Maybe. Yeah, I, I think it's more right. of an overseas thing. UK but, uh... listeners, let us know if this is accurate. <laughs> yeah, and send a picture of your tash if you got one. <laughs> All right, so I'm going to jump in here because I'm wondering now, when I came today, you said... One of the things we might be doing is making some tea, right? Yeah. Are, are we going to do that? I, I would love to look around, and this might be a good chance for us to put the mics down for a couple minutes, hike, warm ourselves back up, and if we come across something that we can use, maybe you were you brought up hawthorn berries. Right, or... so there are some hawthorn trees. There's one near here. Yeah, uh, we're looking much. at one these small trees with lots of thorns all over them. We do have some um, pines. We do. So if you're a regular listener, you may know that in, in past bonus episodes we've made some uh 
tea on the trail before. Yeah. So uh, with stuff we find along the trail. So today we came to Hunter's Creek because we thought we might be able to find some hawthorn berries that were left from the fall. So. And this might be the first episode it doesn't work out. It's <laughs> true. <laughs> and well, if it doesn't work out, I kind of want to keep it in. <laughs> let's look. Yeah. All right. Let's All right. go. All right. So I'm finally warmed up. We did not find our raw materials. No. I think the birds have eaten too many of the hawthorn berries. <laughs> yeah. So I think it would be a good time to talk about the life cycle and reproduction. Because uh, it's actually kind of interesting. I, I was thinking, I was like, is this going to be kind of boring for the podcast? I hope it's not, because I found it very interesting when I was reading about it. So <laughs> I'll let you know. Yeah. <laughs> I'll see Bill yawning and I'll get the hint. Yeah. <laughs> so from around late spring into early summer, uh, pretty much March to June. So, you know, we're in the right month, just uh, the wrong end of it. <laughs> yeah. Um, depending on where you live in the northeastern U.S., second-year coltsfoot plants flower and produce seeds. So a single flower head can produce between 100 and 1,000 seeds, but typically not more than 300. <laughs> what other episode did that happen on that we constantly, like, gave the range, and then we're like, but... I think that was the Willie Adelgid one. <laughs> yeah, that was so good. You kept making outrageous yeah. claims. Yeah. So uh, various studies have looked at seed production within populations. A study in Poland found fewer than 500 seeds per meter squared in a riverbank population one year, and as many as 23,000 seeds per meter squared in the following year in the same population. Whoa. So some variation. That's a range. Yeah. <laughs> now that's a range you can trust. <laughs> um, so uh, another study in the Netherlands observed 225,000 seeds per meter squared when coltsfoot was planted on bare, unvegetated soil, and only 16,500 seeds per meter squared when coltsfoot was planted in a young forest. Okay. So they do best in the open. Yeah. But they do pretty well. <laughs> I mean, that that's still a good amount. 16,000, you know. yeah. Yeah. And again, sure, they're in a forest, but it's before the leaves are out. Right. So it's it's not quite the same, but it's similar to as if they're in an open field. I'm trying to think if I've ever seen coltsfoot in the woods. Maybe on a stream bank? Not much in terms of interior forest. Yeah. You're not going to find it there very much. No, I think of it as a plant in the open. Yeah, it likes edges. Well, yeah, that's where yeah. I see it the most. So I should also mention that it doesn't produce seeds every year, but when it does, it can produce a lot. So the the roots won't send up a flowering stalk every year? Yeah, that's that's what it's saying. Okay. Because mm-hmm. it would be weird to point it and say, that's a non-flowering coltsfoot plant. <laughs> When the leaves come out after the flowers. <laughs> though I will say, though, and, and this doesn't happen very often in the wild, uh, at least not from my understanding, but if it is self-fertilized, a lot of times the seeds don't work out. But, I, but I'll, uh, I'll get into that in a minute. All right. Yeah. I just got to say, like right now, folks, the, uh, there's these big, fat snowflakes just drifting gently down. And um, if Steve and I were in a romantic comedy, we'd probably start making out right now. <laughs> yeah. I will have to say, though, it's nice that we have these mics because they catch the snowflakes yeah. so well. And, and they, they just keep them perfect. Yeah, yeah. There's a and, perfect one right here. And, and you know you've seen uh, those pictures of, of snowflakes online oh, if you yeah. Google search them. Snowflake and, Bentley. Yeah, and I've always heard that, that that guy touched them up. But, you know, doesn't doesn't have to necessarily. Oh, yeah. Beautiful. All right. <laughs> so uh, we mentioned earlier that Colt's foot fruit looks like a dandelion's. Uh, and the best description I can think of to compare it with is an umbrella. 
Okay. Yeah. So the handle where you would normally hold on to the umbrella, that's where the seed is. The akeen, it's a single seed. And the umbrella canopy is where the fine hairs called the pappus are located. And like an umbrella, the pappus can catch a gust of wind and be blown away. Yeah. yeah. Just like dandelion. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and that's exactly what it's evolved to do. So they are wind dispersed, and there are a few things that give them an advantage. Uh, the windiest parts of the year are typically March and April, and this is when you'll find Colt's foot in fruit. The summer has typically more moderate breezes, so that would actually reduce the wind dispersal in a vast majority of other wind dispersed species. Okay. The early flowering and akeen production also ensures that the seeds can uh, disperse before the plants are surrounded by higher vegetation. Yeah. And that would certainly that block total... the seeds. Yeah. yeah. Even its own vegetation. Right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I, I have to imagine that that's maybe why it doesn't produce its own vegetation, too. Huh, interesting. Though it's not like uh, it's not like dandelion's leaves get in the way of its seeds going out. No, but its leaves are usually near the ground. Yeah, it's basil, too. Yeah. yeah. Colt's foot leaves stick up higher than dandelion leaves. Oh, yeah. 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 So the last thing is that it's able to close its involucre bracts when there are high levels of humidity in the air. What and are its... <laughs> you know what I'm going to yeah, ask. And involucre bracts... <laughs> Are the green, leafy, or they kind of look like sepals uh, underneath the flowering head. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And uh, and when they close, they protect the pappus, those fine hairs, uh, from rain damage and entanglement. And uh, the pappus is actually relatively delicate, so you don't really want to damage that if you want the wind to be able to take it away. Yeah. So uh, either way, the seeds are dispersed by the wind, and they have been reported to travel between four and eight miles, but most settle within 300 feet. Not very far, far. <laughs> Not very far, far. Uh. <laughs> so, uh, so the seeds eventually land and almost immediately germinate. And I thought this is interesting. They don't show dormancy. A lot of plants do. They can stay in the soil for a while, but um, most of Colt's foot seeds fail to germinate altogether between three and five months. Wow. Yeah. Um, they also do much better if they're not buried in the soil. So uh, there was a study that showed only half of the seeds germinate when they're buried uh, just 0.4 inches in the ground. And seeds buried greater than 0.8 inches didn't germinate at all. Okay. That makes sense. So it's wind dispersed. It's just going to land right on the surface usually. Yeah. It, yeah. There's, there's no reason for it to be buried in the ground yeah. or anything. Yeah. So after germination, the taproot grows 4 to 8 inches deep and the leaves emerge. Uh, in the next four months, actually a whole lot of stuff happens. Um, two to four months after germination, the plant is all ready to asexually or vegetatively reproduce. Okay. So th that's young, you yeah. know, <laughs> two month old, you know, that's crazy. Um, so typically uh, more energy is put towards vegetative reproduction than sexual reproduction in the species. Um, and it's also the case that as clone density increases, so every time you vegetatively reproduce, you're creating a clone that is genetically identical to the parent plant. Right. And as clone density increases through uh, rhizomes, seed production increases. Oh. Yeah. So the bigger the clone gets, the more seeds are being produced. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. So horizontal rhizomes grow out of the basal leaf axles and can grow more than three feet before sending up aerial shoots, which can happen in the first year if wow. good conditions are present. But generally not, but it can happen in the first year. So typically they grow like an inch? <laughs> <laughs> no, they still grow a good amount in yeah. the first year, yeah. And for folks wondering who don't know, a rhizome is just an underground stem. Yeah. yeah. I've also read that some rhizomes can grow up to 18 feet long, 
and some can grow 10 feet deep, but <laughs> most stay within two to eight inches of the surface. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, the rhizomes are brittle. This is actually kind of an important point. So these individuals can break off and independently start creating their own colony that is genetically identical to the parent plant. Ah. So separate colony, but still you got the same genetics going on. Right. Mm-hmm. So individuals that are created through rhizomes typically establish themselves in the first year, so they don't really do much that first season. They produce aerial shoots the second year, so they're producing leaves the second year, and then they flower the third year. All right, so now back to the seed. So three to four months after germination, the primary root dies, and adventitious roots develop from the first nodes on the stem, and these can grow up to five feet deep. And I don't know if you've noticed, a lot of months have gone by. So we're going right through the spring, through the summer, with all this happening. And now by the fall, several leaves are present, rhizomes are well-developed, and flower buds have formed. Now remember, this plant won't flower until the early spring, but it has everything ready to go. So the flower buds are there Oh yeah. before the winter. It's just that the flowering stalks haven't elongated yet. Okay. In the winter, the leaves die. And the only thing that's visible at the soil surface is a cluster of flower buds. I've heard dandelion does that too, that the flower buds will form at the top of the rootstock. Oh yeah. Waiting to elongate. And by the way, I didn't put this in my notes, but dandelions also flower starting in March and they go until about September. Huh. Yeah. So they're a spring plant, but they're also a summer and a fall plant. Right, that's why they're yeah. not ephemeral. <laughs> yeah, what's the opposite? <laughs> or it's not evergreen, but <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> so in the early spring, new vegetative shoots develop, flowering stems elongate, so you don't just have the buds on the surface, they actually raise into the air. Uh, and flowers open, are pollinated, produce seed, and the whole cycle begins again. So just to review, plants that start as seeds typically produce seeds during their second year, and clones created through rhizomes typically produce seeds during their third year. Okay. Yeah. I'm wondering if that quick germination, it must help it with competition. Oh, yeah. I think so. Yeah. Because, man, that is fast. Yeah. (laughs) All right. So I think it's time to move away from the life cycle. I mean, we've fully gone in the cycle now. We've taken a whole loop. Uh, And let's go into the animal uses. So let's start with the good animals. Uh, (laughs) Colt's foot uh, does a poor job pollinating itself. Uh, Individuals that were self-pollinated in experiments primarily produce shriveled, empty fruits. In its native range, Colt's foot is pollinated by bees, hoverflies, flies, beetles, and possibly ants. Leaf miner flies, aphids, and some groups of moths feed on the roots, stems, leaves, and flowers of Colt's foot. In terms of how human animals use it, Uh, Europeans have historically used the leaves uh, and roots in teas, candies, and tobaccos, like I said earlier. And it was also used to make medicine to treat coughs and congestion. But as it turns out, Colt's foot is full of carcinogenic liver toxins. (laughs) And we have the rats with liver cancer to prove it. Which, if you ever want to depress yourself and ruin your day, I got a good study for you to read in the episode notes. But I got to jump in. (laughs) Sure. Because from my days when I used to be very into herbalism and mm-hmm. collecting wild plants. Full disclosure, I have in the past collected Colt's foot flowers and used them to make tea. Uh-huh. So maybe my liver is full of cancer. But <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I guess it depends on how much you're using, right? I do remember reading something that said, yes, there may be carcinogens in Colt's foot, but there's more carcinogens, I don't know whether they're the same or not, 
in beer. So I'll look something <laughs> up and put it in the, the episode notes about that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that sounds good. So uh, apparently now there are varieties of Colesfoot without the alkaloids, and it's still used medicinally for some things. What do you so mean people they, have... They were able to breed it. Oh, okay. So it doesn't have those toxins in it. All yet. right. All right, so now on to its status. I said before that it is non-native, so it's you know it's from Europe, Asia, and Africa. And so it does invade moist, open, and disturbed areas, uh, such as stream banks, ditches, and fields, uh, where it crowds out native plants through the formation of, the, of large colonies, like we were saying. But is it considered invasive? It's not really considered especially invasive. Yeah, I wouldn't think so. Yeah. Um, in its native range, it's not a strong competitor. Uh, it does not persist past early succession, which you would expect because it's you find it on edges. Yeah. So as vegetation density and cover increases, colt's foot populations decline over time. You'd more or less suspect that. Yeah, right. Yeah. Especially in a place where it has all the things that it evolved with, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and a couple of goldenrods we sent their way. <laughs> So uh, in the northeast U.S. and southeast Canada, there are still some concerns. Uh, while it's not typically found invading interior forest habitats, like, like, I, like we were saying before, um, it's often found on the edge habitats, uh, especially anthropogenically disturbed sites. And it's also quick to establish itself on burned sites. So one of the things that was, uh, that was talked about in one of the papers that I was reading was that if you're looking into management of Colesfoot, which very few people are, <laughs> I can't. Um, it, it would probably be important to look, like let's say if you're burning an area, if you have something upstream of it um, that maybe could, you know, seeds could flow down, not only are they dispersed through wind, they're also dispersed through water as well. Okay. They could land on water and travel with the current. Yeah. Yeah, so if you have something downstream of a Coltsfoot population that just was burned or there's some disturbance... You might expect it to show up. Yeah, it, that's a good prediction, yeah. Okay. So, Coltsfoot has the typical non-native advantages of being released from its predators and competitors it evolved with, and its high seed production, fast vegetative spread, and ability to tolerate a wide range of environmental conditions helps it dominate disturbed areas. I, I should also mention that it is tough to remove because the rhizomes are brittle, and like I was saying before, a colony could right. break up and start their own colonies. You think you got it, but there's pieces left in the soil. Yeah, and even small fragments left in the soil can grow into new plants. Right. So um, now I'm going to mention a couple states that it's actually listed in. So in Alabama, it's a Class A noxious weed. And I read into what the Class A and Class B and, and Class C are. Class A is actually something that they're worried about, a weed they're worried about, but it actually doesn't occur in the state yet. Notice I said Alabama. That's not in the northeastern United States. Yeah. But um, they're looking for the, it. The edge of the range does come pretty close to Alabama because there's some spotty counties getting close. Um, in Connecticut, it's invasive and banned. So it's banned from importation, movement, purchase, transplant, cultivation, oh. um, or distribution. So it is considered invasive in, in Connecticut. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Massachusetts, it's prohibited. So again, it's similar to being banned. <laughs> no uh, sale, trade, distribution, or related activities. What are you in for? <laughs> Selling cold sweat. <laughs> <laughs> and in Oregon, it's an A-designated weed. Um, an A-designated weed, it, all that means, it's actually kind of the lowest level. Wait, of did you say Oregon? In, in Oregon. The yeah. West Coast? I said that that in um, Idaho and Oregon, there's some counties that have Colts foot. Oh, so it's it's all northeastern U.S. plus a few counties in the northwest. Oh. Yeah, 
Um, so in Oregon, it's an A-designated weed. And like I said, it's like kind of, that's kind of the lowest you can be. It's just known to occur in small infestations or in neighboring states. So it's just something like we should be on the look for, but n- nothing to get too worried about. All right. I think that's it. So kind of like as a review, Coltsfoot is a non-native rhizomatous perennial. It likes to invade disturbed areas and especially areas with wet soils. It's a spring ephemeral, which means that they avoid competition through time and not space. And they're not especially invasive, though they can dominate habitats and shade out native species. So, Bill, do you have any last things to add that maybe, I don't know, that you found interesting or or something you still want to share about this plant? No, I don't think I can top the bit where I ate the ashes from the cold foot. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's it. (laughs) Okay, sounds good. And I do want to say that I think what's going to happen with these type of episodes, because I'd still love to make more spring ephemeral episodes is that I chose Coltsfoot not knowing if there was anything interesting to say about them <laughs> and we we may pick a species in the future and I know we will that doesn't have a lot of research done on it so I'm actually kind of looking forward to more disappointing episodes in the future <laughs> what? because at the at the very least I'll learn a lot about the boring aspects of the plant and maybe not be able to produce the the greatest most grand <laughs> episode in the world but but uh, it's exciting to look into a lot of these that I haven't actually done deep dives into the literature. I don't think we've ever found a boring plant. Yeah, but <laughs> I'm, I'm literally just, pick, I kind of want to pick ones that I haven't really heard much about. Okay. And sometimes, like, Coltsfoot was actually relatively difficult to find some good studies on. Oh, yeah. okay. Because it's usually brought up in a, a study that's done a suite of species. It's, it's usually not on its own. Right. Yeah. Well, our next episode that we are planning to do another spring ephemeral right Mm -hmm. okay that's actually what uh, inspired me to do this one yeah but that one will be a regular not like a bonus one yeah yeah all right so we hope you enjoyed the episode first and foremost we'd like to thank our growing list of patreon supporters and our latest patreon supporter is taylor graham thank you taylor yeah and as always a special thank you to our top patrons rob we named the dog indy Bethany, and especially Scott, Ken, Diane, Morgan, Alyssa, and Mountain Misery Farms. We also want to thank our new five-star reviewers. So thank you, Mimi Buckles and Guru This. And I really love what Guru said in his review. I haven't Uh, read this one yet. Yeah, this is new. It's like eight hours fresh. Yeah, so I wondered to myself, hmm, maybe there's a podcast where people are walking around the woods talking about natural history. (laughs) Boom! And there we were. (laughs) There's one. Yeah, so keep those reviews coming, guys. It really helps us get the word out to more people. And I do want to mention that we did recently get our first one-star review. Yes. After last month's episode. On the Screech Owl. Yeah. And I agreed with some of it, so I agreed that sometimes our crunching footsteps can be annoying. That's a valid point. But the rest of the email reads... uh, Punking one of the guys with fake growls and fake screech owl calls makes me wonder what else they fake. <laughs> and now I feel like Bill and I need to be honest with you guys. <laughs> we have told some lies. Uh, so besides me being pranked, you know, which was real. It really was real. I had no idea. It, the thought never even crossed my mind that it could have been rich. Um, and folks, uh, I got to say, if you haven't listened to the screech owl episode, go listen to that episode. Yeah, although I did just spoil it a little bit. Um, so, you know... Well, that stuff was fake. I really, truly was pranked by it. Um, but I think this is a good time to put a little super cut of all the times we lied or faked something on the podcast. Let's do it. <laughs> all right. The scientific name is Eurosta solidaginis, 
Um, I, I like s- the Solodo Guinness in there, the <laughs> reference to Solodego. Oh, that's right. I thought you were going to say reference to Guinness, but <laughs> I thought you were going to make a You're joke. You're drinking a Guinness right now. This is insane. <laughs> This is awkward to bring up at the end of the episode, more or less, but you're dressed as a giant partridge right now. You showed up today dressed in a big partridge costume. I know I no one can actually see. Like, every episode, Bill has been, and I, I've totally failed to mention this the whole time, <laughs> but, like, for the bear episode, Bill was in a bear costume. A bear but, costume. like, one of those humanoid bear costumes where it just had the extra large head and just regular people, arms and legs. Yeah. Um, I just do it for myself. <laughs> yeah. But for me, I, I think the easiest way to do it is to... Just go to IMDb's top 100 most handsome men in the world. And I would say that I'm a, I'm a pretty decent mix between the, the top two on the list. So, yeah, the Taiwanese-born Canadian model and actor, Godfrey Gao, and then uh, the Australian actor, Chris Hemsworth. So, wow. I mean, if you just mix, like, those two together, that's about what I look like. So, I mean... No comment here. weed every day. <laughs> oh my goodness. Okay, so uh, that was um, friend of the show, uh, Dr. Dre. <laughs> but I think for you guys, I'll just insert a clip of the Cooper's Hawks call in post production, unless we stumble across one at its nest right now. Whoa! <laughs> We're so lucky! In the wintertime, too! What's the chance of that happening? <laughs> wow. That's one for the ages. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> Alright, I think those are all the lies. <laughs> but but uh, all joking aside, we haven't lied about anything on the podcast, aside from some blatantly obvious jokes. And in a way, I think jokes are lies, but, you know, they're supposed to be very obvious lies, I yeah. think, right? But that, that was just some fun. Really, I think a one-star review gives us more uh, credibility, That's really. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I, I kind of like seeing it there now. So, <laughs> I think it was actually Steve's mom. <laughs> she I was would, so upset that we punked him. Yeah, I wouldn't return her calls, actually. <laughs> That's what it was. All right, so before we end the episode... Um, I, I want to give a shout out to people, websites, and podcasts that reference the podcast in some way. You know, um, 99% of the time we find out through, you know, our own website because we see where people are being referred from. Uh, and these people never reach out to us, but I still want to thank them. So um, a few uh, snuck by. <laughs> so these are kind of old, but um, the Garden Path podcast, the Dirty Sneaker blog, Julia Cook and the Pith and Petal blog. So, yeah, thank you guys. And as always, we'll put a link to all of these websites in the episode notes. Yeah, thanks, folks. Yeah. So, I also stumbled across a mention of the podcast in a comment on Reddit. Oh. Yeah. Um, someone asked for science podcasts, and the Reddit user uh, suggested In Defense of Plants. A good podcast. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's yeah. okay. Um, <laughs> That's the, our friend man. The Field Guides podcast and the Urban Wildlife podcast. Oh, awesome. Yeah, and, and described all of us as just a bunch of dudes talking about nature. <laughs> and I thought that was nice. And then when pressed for more information, the user said, The Field Guides podcast is basically just two guys going for a hike somewhere and talking about a specific nature topic. The info is good, but I think the host can be a little dry, like they're reading off a script. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and he's right (laughs) so uh, I I don't know if I've said it before but I am not much of a public speaker and I try to do as much as I can off the cuff but I really truly have notes that I'm reading from during and sometimes you'll notice me like 
you'll notice the tone in my voice that, oh, that guy's definitely reading. So I, so I totally agree with him. And I think for the sake of the podcast and for making it a better podcast, I think I want to do it less scripted or, or maybe sounding like it's less scripted anyway. Well, on this episode, uh, I actually find myself, instead of listening to you, I was thinking how you're getting better at making your reading sound like natural talking. <laughs> it's, it's almost like I'm skirting the issue. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so I, I really thank the Reddit user for his review because that oh, yeah. really is a great constructive criticism. Right. right? We love constructive criticism. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah. And, and, and really just personally, I'd love to get better at giving presentations and, and public speaking. So I'll do my best to sound like I'm not reading from now on, guys. <laughs> You're going to still hear it. In fact, in this episode, I guarantee you noticed. <laughs> All right. So, um, lastly, we were featured on a video titled top outdoor podcasts for 2017 on YouTube. Wow. Yep. Uh, the video is by Backpacker Diaries, and I recommend checking out his videos. He goes on a bunch of adventures out west and sometimes outside the west as well. Um, and, and I've watched a few of his uh, videos, and I found them all to be really relaxing and just something that is just really enjoyable to watch. I, I, and I think he's, he's a great narrator, too. He's got a really soothing voice. And what's it called? It's called Backpacker Diaries. Okay. And as always, links in the episode notes. And if you have any of your own questions, comments, or episode suggestions, send us an email at thefieldguides@gmail.com. at gmail.com. And don't forget to email us some questions for our Ask Us Anything bonus episode that we really will be doing soon <laughs> because we got 25 written reviews. Do you know how many reviews we currently have? I'm not saying written, but right. just reviews in general. It's like 70, right? 71, yeah. Yeah, thank you, folks. Thank <laughs> yeah. you. Also, visit us on Instagram at the Field Guides Podcast. Follow us on Twitter at Field Guides Pod. Like and follow us on Facebook. And visit our website at thefieldguidespodcast.com. And if you like what you hear and you want to support the podcast, you can do so on patreon.com forward slash the field guides. But if you're like us and can't afford to financially support a podcast right now, there are other ways you can help out. You can share our episode with friends or rate us and leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher. It really helps us get the word out to more people. So thanks for listening, and we'll see you later this month. See you next time, folks. Man, I wish we'd end this closer to the parking lot. Why do you say that? Because it's so far, far away. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs>